I love scotch. 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 Yep. Have another whiskey. If you'd like to speak to me in person, press one. If you'd like to order drugs, press hash. <laughs> I had a gentleman in the crowd that was like, tell me how to drink Glenfiddich. And I was like, I will not do that. You drink Glenfiddich how you want to drink Glenfiddich. Wear a cowboy hat in Los Angeles and look at the amount of looks you get. Yeah, it's unbelievable. This is the most flamboyant city on earth. You wear a cowboy hat. People look at you like you are yep. like an alien. The Beatles came on and they might pick me up on his shoulder. George Harrison is as close to me as that yep. wall now. I went, all right, George, all right. And he went, cough. <laughs> and that was the closest <laughs> I ever came to the Beatles. <laughs> have a whiskey while we... Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cheers, Cheers. Long. Cheers. Cheers. Yep. So welcome back to United States of Dramerica and the second of our social distancing Podcast. I'm delighted to have with me over the over the machine Noah Ebslin. Hey, how are you? I've been better. How are you? I'm doing. We're such a loaded question these days. How are you? There's not even a good answer. No, there isn't. So, if there's a sign that we're in strange times, it's a combination of the fact that Noah is the first guest to come on the podcast who actually doesn't drink which is an odd thing for a whiskey podcast. He's interesting enough to make the guest cut, apart from the not drinking, but we're relaxing the rules because, you know, apocalypse. So um, have you got a drink there with you, Noah? I do, I do. It's a, it's a vintage 1973 cup of tap water. Tap it's water? Very, very tasty. <laughs> are, are, you, are you not going You're not going down the diet soda route during this particular... No, no, that's a little bit much. Yeah, no, water. Not yeah. very good. Um, I've obviously had a, I have a variety of alcoholic drinks with me, so at least one of us is keeping up the, the broad theme of the United States of America. So look, Noah, you are, you are, you're a writer. You are a man who has writing and producing credits on uh, some shows that lots of people will have heard of. So the sort of a lot of the Shonda Rhimes shows, so Grey's Anatomy and Scandal, but also you wrote on Colony. And recently you've just come off Hawaii Five-0, where you were on staff there. Um, so here's the question for you. If you were in a writer's room doing some kind of TV show about uh, some kind of global pandemic and people were making suggestions like the whole of India being locked down and people being welded into their apartments and liberal places like California being under lockdown, would anyone take any of these sort of ideas seriously, even if that was what the show was about? I think that's a good question. I think that a lot of shows and movies in the past have started with this premise of global pandemic. Uh, and in the minds of writers, te we tend to go to places that are just a bit more, I, backtracking a little bit, I think the assumption is is always based on what we watch on TV is that our leaders, and we're not going to go into our, any particular leader would have handled the situation better that there's, that there's people out there who are, who are informed, who are handling things, who are, who are acting in our best interest. And there certainly are. Uh, but I am also surprised at the amount of people who are making decisions that seem to be affecting the world in negative ways. And, I think we'd get a lot of notes if this was playing out as a TV show that it's not believable, that it's not realistic, that that would never happen, that there would be safeguards, that there would be all of these things that didn't happen this time. Um, but luckily, we hopefully, in the real world and not in a TV show, will learn from it and we'll, we'll come out stronger. So, interestingly, so you're saying the part of all of this that's playing out, it's not the... It's not the actual things that are happening, you know, the mortality rates, the, the things that happen to the economy. The bit that would be most unbelievable in terms of the writing room is, is how decisions are being taken as opposed to the things that are happening. Right. And that, and that you're we're realizing quickly that the, I mean, the economics of this whole situation are, is horrific. And there is no good answer to how, how we handle this. But you can't judge human lives uh, as sort of a commodity, as dollars and cents. And, I, and we're seeing play out in real time in a lot of different countries that these countries are deciding that maybe, and right now we're at a sort of tipping point 
I'm not sure when this podcast will come out and if decisions will be made that are different after the podcast comes out, but that we're at this weird tipping point where they're deciding that maybe it's best just to like get infected, to get through this, to push through this, to, you know, to spite, to sort of, you know, let the elders take the brunt of this while we, while we deal with, um, you know, in order to get the economy back on track. And that's, that's not a decision that if this was a TV show, that any network would want you to be kind of making those callous decisions. On the other hand, I, you know, I don't, there is a really hard position that our leaders are in right now, and there really is no good answers, and they're going to be criticized no matter what they do. So hopefully we just survive and, and move forward. So of all the shows that you've worked on, what's the closest you've got to a version of this? Because Colony wasn't about a pandemic, but was about people sort of being walled up somewhere. If they, Okay. <laughs> If this, let me break it down on different shows I've worked on, uh, yeah. and we'll talk about my roles on those shows uh, later because I wasn't always I wasn't always a writer on all these shows. On the Sean Deland shows, I was actually a producer. But the if I, this was sort of private practice, you would have a you know a couple of cases in Southern California. We'd cure them by the fourth act, and and a few of the characters would kiss by the end. If this was Grey's Anatomy, the stakes would be higher. And you would see more deaths, more more fatalities. Uh, but our but the heroic doctors on that show would also get it under control in their hospital. If this was Scandal, the TV show that I worked on, which is about politics in Washington, there would definitely have been some conspiracy. Something, somebody did this. Somebody set this up, and Olivia Pope would have to go in and save the day. And she would because she's so smart. And by the end of the episode, it might even be a two-parter. The pandemic would be under control. So just so I, I'm, I'm enjoying this, and this can go quite a long way. Just on the scandal one, so that gets into the politics stuff. But again, if you were in a room on scandal and you said that some of the things are actually going on in terms of you know you having press conferences where people are literally disagreeing with each other, and that's not unique to America; that's in lots of different places. Would would the note come down from the exec producer or or, or whoever saying, yeah, no one's. Uh, you know, politics, you're allowed a bit of corruption, you're allowed a bit of this and you're allowed about that. You can't have, like, obviously disquiet between the people making the decisions and such a clear lack of information. Yeah, I mean, I, Scandal was a crazy show where they did crazy things every episode. But yes, Shonda would, would say something like, that's too TV, meaning like that's not believable enough. That's not, you keep it somewhat grounded in something real. And, and yeah, so I think all of this would be even too unbelievable for a TV show like Scandal that deals with the unbelievable uh, in regards to politics every episode. Yeah, and look, to be absolutely clear, I'm not, I don't want to get into politics on this show. That's never what it's been about. I think this is more about, I mean, these are impossible decisions being taken by people in a very fast-moving situation. So this is more about the unbelievable part is not the strength and weaknesses of our politicians, because that's not what we're talking about here. This is the fact that the sorts of decisions people are taking are, it's not quite Independence Day, Armageddon um, sort of decisions, but they are also, they're not far away from that in terms of lack of information, people not really understanding what's going on. It's changing every five minutes. It's extraordinary times. Yeah, and, and, and Independence Day is a great example because I was using that myself where you're waiting for that speech that a president's going to give, like the Independence Day speech, that we're all in this together, that this is a global thing and that together we're going to rise up and we're going to face it and we're going to solve it. And we just don't have that. Forget about the decisions people are making. We don't have that kind of inspirational leadership right now. People just unifying the world against what might be considered for the first time, you know, and I taught history for a long time, and I can't think of another example. For the first time in human history, we have a global enemy, one single thing that is affecting the entire globe in the same way. And yet we haven't risen up as a globe, as a people and saying, this is how we're going to handle it. It's been these sort of disparate approaches from different countries. And a lot of blaming is starting. But in Independence Day, that was also the case at the beginning until it wasn't. Yeah, so hopefully we're at the beginning of the movie, and then the end of the movie we'll get a good speech from somebody that will rise us up as a nation. So um, I think you've just compared the global pandemic to being uh, to an alien invasion. 
Um, but anyway, moving on. So you've done your scandal. What, keep going through your show. Okay, so that there, I mean, I've done more shows, but those are the three on the Shonda Rhyme side that kind of would address the pandemic. The the two that I worked on after that, I worked on Colony for Carlton Hughes and Hawaii Five O most recently for Peter Lankoff. Let's start with Hawaii Five O. We might deal with a global pandemic as a as a as a plot line where our heroic 5-0 task force in Hawaii realizes there's some global conspiracy where a pandemic is, uh, some virus is about to get released and our very heroic McGarrett and Danny would solve it by the end of the, of that one episode for sure. Genie back in the bottle, very few people dead except for the bad guys, of course. So the closest real show that actually feels Scarily like this. We can back up. Just a Hawaii Five O question. So obviously you joined the show after the real thing that did happen in Hawaii. But if you'd been in the room for Hawaii Five O and you'd pitched a false alarm on a nuclear missile test that made all the Hawaiians sort of jump down storm drains and hide in their bathrooms, which obviously happened, it must be a year ago now. Would that have worked as an episode of Hawaii Five O? Would it have then been dismissed as two TV? No, no, Hawaii Five O dealt in that all the time. In fact, they used that, uh, the very finale of last season. I don't want to go into too many details for people who are still watching the show, but they used that uh, device of the text message that said the world is ending. I mean, that, that, not sorry, the text message that said a nuclear bomb is on the way as sort of a plot device. So they actually, but that was after it already happened. Yeah. And by the way, we can come back to that because I'm from Hawaii and that situation really affected Hawaiians uh, traumatically to learn to get a text message saying they're all about to die, but that's we can we can put a pin in that for a second. Well, it's uh, so interesting. So because it happened afterwards, it sort of it was okay. But if that had been pitched before it happened, would that have been a legitimate thing? Given the way writers' rooms works and the ideas you throw out there, do you think that would have flown as an idea? Would have been no. Pro- probably someone would have said there's safeguards to prevent this thing from happening because it was a colossal error of government to let that text go out to everybody. It was an act. It turned out it was an accident and yeah. but those accidents shouldn't happen. And if we wrote it as an accident, as it happened, they show used it in kind of a slightly different way. But if we wrote it as an accident, they would be like, there is no way any mm-hmm. government would allow for a text message of, of that magnitude that is going to traumatize that many people to get there. Mu- there must be to be released. There must be some kind of safeguard. And, and of course it turns, it turns out there wasn't. So if that was a TV show, you would, it would have been some kind of clever plot by somebody trying to break the economy or overthrow a government right. or something. Okay. And, and so they used, they used it in, in somewhat of that way. Uh, okay. as- so, um, I know you're about to come to a big finale about which show is most similar, but before we do that, while we're on Hawaii, obviously you're from Hawaii. I mean, a cynic would say the only reason you got the job on Hawaii 5.0 is because you're a Hawaiian, uh, but obviously I would never say that because English people are always nice to their American friends. Um, how is Hawaii at the moment? Because being on an island is different in a way to being on the mainland. My family is in a unique situation. We're from the island of Kauai, and my brother is one of seven councilmen my dad was the CEO of the hospital and is still sort of like an elder statesman doctor on the island. And so they're both sort of actively involved with this crisis in Hawaii. The, the, uh, the coronavirus really wasn't there uh, in any huge numbers a week ago or even two weeks, especially two weeks ago. There wasn't a lot of cases, but there was a lot of fear that the tourism industry, which brings, I don't know the numbers for, the, out, the other islands, but the one I live on, brought, brings over a million people to the island of Kauai every uh, year. And they, the fear, of course, is that people with coronavirus were going to come from all over the world and infect the island, which, unlike here, as scary as, as it is in L.A. or other places, if one of us gets sick while you know, I'm currently living in L.A., uh, the, we can go to our local hospital or if that's full, maybe we have to drive to Santa Barbara. Or if that's full, maybe we have to drive to Fresno. There's places we can go that will hopefully give us an hopefully give us an ICU bed. In Kauai, there is I think nine ICU beds on the entire island. I don't know how many ventilators there are. So 
if the island residents, 65,000 plus however many tourists are there at the time when the quarantine begins, get sick, there's not enough ventilators to go around and Hawaii is the most isolated landmass in the world, meaning you would need to take some kind of air flight to another island, which would have the same problem of isolation. So then you'd have to probably fly to the mainland and all the flights are being canceled. So really they're in the most uniquely difficult situation if coronavirus should take hold. The positive side of all of that is there's a lot of natural resources and they can survive on the land, they can survive from fishing, they can survive from, so supply lines being disrupted isn't as worrisome. It's just making sure that coronavirus really doesn't take hold. And so they've just begun sort of what LA began two weeks ago, which is a stay at home. Um, they're asking tourists to go home. They're closing all kinds of uh, you know public locations just to make it feel like, um, just to have the local to give the locals a fighting chance and and, yeah, and so yeah. far it's working so the disney resort down in hawaii which we once had the pleasure of going i just saw they've shut um yeah i mean it's it's strange so i we used to live on the island of bermuda and it's different because it's it's much smaller so the scale is obviously very different i don't know how few icu beds they've got there but it's not many they're worried about tourism um, I think also worried about the reinsurance market, which is big there because insurance is going to get hit very hard once all this gets sorted out. Um, I think they've only got two cases and it's maybe easier to contain, but I think there's a worry there and they don't have the natural resources. You know, they'll run out of food at some point if things get terrible. I talked to a friend today who is based on an island, one of the channel lines off the UK, and they're worried because it's an island. Obviously, it's not the, it's a lot closer to fly, but if there's no flights, you know, their number of ICU beds is, you know, less than 10, and right. which is plenty for normal conditions. It's a, it's strange. Some people want to be isolated. You don't want to be on an island. You know, everyone's handling this differently. Is it good to be in a big city? I don't think the people of New York think so today. Um, I'm not no, sure. we had to, we faced that exact choice because we were asked by my family to fly back to Kauai and be with them about two weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, and we, or do we stay in Los Angeles, which we know through the Watts riots and the other, you know, when social, when the societal issues occurs, LA and New York and DC and Chicago, they can become, there could be a lot of unrest. So where is safer for us to be? And ultimately we decided to stay in our home here in LA and just, you know, hope for the best. Uh, but you, there is no, there is no, there really is no good place except for maybe the f farms out in like Idaho like when you're really far from other people, maybe they won't, you know, they'll have a smaller worries of other people in bigger cities. But yeah, between Kauai and Los Angeles, I, there, I don't know which place is better to be right now. Yeah, and, and you're right. And, and there's been the big issue in like the highlands of Scotland where lots of good whiskey is made, that lots of sort of southerners have been going up there with their camper vans hoping to see out the crisis up there. The problem when you go remote is either you're taking the virus there or you're using up the resources and there probably isn't a hospital bed anywhere nearby. So it's all very difficult choices. Someone on Kauai posted a really interesting analogy, which is not an analogy or just like a really interesting post about the tourists are like, we don't get why you're so upset that we're here because there's been a, a, a little uptick in uh, incidences against tourists on Kauai because people are taking these Corona vacations, cheap flights and going to the beach and going, well, if I'm going to die, I should be on the beach. And a local was like, and they're like, why are you so upset? And they're like, because if we go to the hospital together, we both have coronavirus, I'm a local and you're a tourist, and there's only one ventilator for the two of us, who gets it? Like, I don't want to be in that situation where you're taking resources away from the people on our island who need it. You should go to the, the, you know, the place where you live and use their resources and not use up our resources in case of emergency. But again, the locals understood that, but the, the tourists were still, you know, as of yesterday when the announcement was made that on thursday there's going to be a stay-at-home you know quarantine start the island is still packed with tourists who are still coming and you know vacationing and it's a it's really frustrating i think yeah uh, look, um and there's all this stuff I, I talked about this on the last podcast about the the we talk about the flip side of drinking so lots of people are drinking good booze at home at the moment lots of silly young people out drinking in the streets all those spring breakers in Florida, some of them are starting to now get diagnosed with it. 
Um, so perhaps they weren't as invincible after all. But, but anyway, I, I interrupted you. You were mid, I mean, you were a creative and you were mid flow. So tell me about Colony. Well, we just took a quick commercial break as they do in our, my business. Uh, no, and quickly, the last one is, is the worst case scenario situation for us, which is Colony. And Colony was a TV show uh, that was run and, and co-created by Carlton Cuse and Ryan Condal. And they created a world in which Los Angeles and other cities, there was sort of an alien invasion. You never really saw the aliens, but what you did see was the aliens constructed these walls around many major cities, creating these sort of colonies that were patrolled by mechanical drones. And the, the, it really created the situation of these uh, sort of a war refugee, uh, sort of Warsaw Ghetto-esque scenario where people were living in poverty and struggling uh, and against sort of their alien overlords who they never even saw. So it created this sort of societal problem where, which was what the show was about, really wasn't about aliens. It was about how people survive with scarcity, how people survive with adversity, how people survive in a contained, quarantined city, which is exactly what we live in. And, you know, obviously that was a TV show. Things were designed in that show to get worse and worse and harder and harder for the people. So, but, you know, it was, it attempted to be grounded in reality. And that's why that show to me is so scary in comparison to what's happening here. We're not there yet. We probably will never get there, but we could. So I think our politicians, and I'm very, you know, I think LA and, and California in general are making good decisions. You know, hopefully we continue making good decisions and we don't disintegrate into, you know, societal upra- uh, upheaval. <laughs> So from a TV show point of view, when they were conceiving that show, obviously, as you say, a lot of these things, although the show's about aliens, it's not about aliens, as it were. Um, when they were pitching that idea, if someone on the network said, no, I don't like the aliens idea, let's just do some kind of global pandemic, wipes everyone out apart from the people in the cities. And that's the sort of plot device to get you to then do your, what it's like living in poverty in a city thing. That would have been no less plausible. In fact, that's been the plot for other shows of a similar nature, hasn't it? In fact, I was working on one right before all this started with really good producers and directors attached to it that went very quiet when this started because it just felt too real, I think. I think there's, you know, all, a lot of writers have that story. It's like a really good starting point. Virus wipes out X amount of people and the survivors have to do something. And I think... You know, we like watching those shows. We like reading those books. There's been many of them, but I think right now you really can't get that show made because it's, it's too close. Like, why do we want to watch TV in many senses is escapism? And this is our reality. Uh, it's why you didn't see a lot of political shows in the last few years get made. It's because our, our daily life is politics. And so you didn't use, it, you know, no network wanted that as a mirror. So right now, I don't think you're going to see very many shows come out that deal specifically with global pandemics because it's what we're living through. And I think people will be like, well, we lived through that. Let's focus on something else that, you know, can get our audience away from that reality. That's that TV is doing great. People are watching in huge numbers because, you know, they're home. So I guess uh, when I decided to do these uh, sort of coronavirus podcast specials, Frankly, some of it is catharsis to, for me because I get the chance to talk to people outside my own home at a time when there's not a lot going on. And you, I don't want to have too many of these conversations. But what's it like for you as a writer? Because your job is to sort of go down the rabbit hole, as it were, when you're on a show, which theoretically could be like this. Like you say, you're working on something like this anyway. Like how are you, are you, do you find yourself working out how this would play out TV show wise? And how do you stop yourself doing that? Because actually that's not particularly helpful at the moment when this actually, as you say, it's really happening and you're at home with your family. I think again, we always, the writers, you know, that I communicate with and myself, we're always imagining the, the version that we'd write, which, which probably is, I don't want to use the word smarter, but better plotted than what this is this just feels really random so we but you definitely do you know i'm waiting for the third act uh 
you know, savior to come in, some kind of huge Hail Mary play that you started in the first act where some scientist somewhere got a little funding, some character got a little, you know, something, uh, introduction on the show. And then that character comes back with some huge discovery that, you know, lets us all go back to our daily life. You have some huge moment where a lot of people die, then they come in, they save everybody. And the final moment is all of us, you know, going to a football game or the mall or somewhere where there's other human beings. But I don't, you can imagine that right now. I just don't know, you know, I can't, it's hard to forecast. That's what's really going to happen. On the other hand, it's what needs to happen because we can't live in this limbo forever. So hopefully that does happen. And we're just in this weird middle part of this real TV show where we just don't have all the answers. Well, I'm going to open a whiskey because this is a whiskey podcast and that you've inspired me to. So I'm going to open my, my bottle now. Just uh, You don't have to, obviously. But otherwise, people will think, well, this has nothing to do with whiskey. It's just about coronavirus. Um, I hope, did, I, did I warrant a really expensive Belveni? What, what, what am I drinking? What are you drinking on behalf of me in this podcast? Okay, so funnily enough, um, I got a care package from um, uh, of the whiskey store last night with a variety of bits and pieces and I requested it's not particularly expensive and it's not scotch but there's a drink called Howlerhead which has got a picture of a monkey on the on the logo and it's banana flavoured bourbon and um, it's very light and it's very easy to drink and um, I, I started at the beginning of this apocalypse drinking all my very best whiskeys, and now I'm thinking, well, actually, I'm sure we're going to get through it, so I don't want to drink them all. So I'm now drinking something light and easy to drink, which is a sort of day-to-day whiskey. So I'm going for some American Howlerhead banana-flavoured bourbon to get me through this, and a beer, because we don't normally do beer on this podcast, but there's, um, there's a brewery called McLeod's, which is a Scottish-themed um, brewery uh, in uh, Van Nuys in the north of LA and they have fantastic beer and they're shut at the moment like all the restaurants and I'm trying to support them by drinking their beers so uh, that was me opening my can of Van Nuys um, right so let's try and cheer things up a little bit okay um, let's cheer it up what inspired you to be a writer in the first place I don't think anything inspired me to be a writer I think I think I was a writer from when I was about in seventh grade, I just enjoyed writing. I came from a family that my grandfather was a writer. My grandmother was a writer. My grandmother's cousin was the poet laureate of the United States, you wow. know, 60 years ago. The So writing was always hugely, was something that was admired in my family. Uh, my All my aunts and uncles to some level are writers. Uh, everyone aspired to be a writer. My grandfather was a playwright and a TV writer and, and screenwriter. Uh, and so I don't think anyone was particularly surprised when I decided I was wanted to go down that path. Uh, it took a while. You know, it, it ambition always sort of outstrips ability for a long time. And so it's a, it was a tricky business to get into. Uh, but I, you know, I really enjoyed putting words to the page and always said, well, if I don't succeed... I actually just like coming up with these stories and I'll continue doing so. But a few episodes ago, we had Robert Hewitt Wolf, who I know is a writer yep. who you admire on the show. And we talked a lot on the show about what it's like being a writer and it's, you know, it's a difficult career path and there's uncertainty. So I, I don't necessarily do all of that again, but I guess what's interesting at the moment is what you go through on a very regular basis. Uh, so Hawaii Five, I had a show you were on, it ended the other day. Nothing to do with any of what's going on. It just ended because these shows end after whatever it was, 17 Ten. seasons. Um, and so suddenly you've gone from successful writer on a network TV show to being temporarily out of work again. Um, and when we first met, you were out of work, consistent work for over a year, even though your credits include all these Shonda, Shondaland TV shows that everyone's heard of. So it's a, it's a, it's a weird world where you're, going through the uncertainty of employment and unemployment. Everyone else in the world is now going through a version of that, whatever industry they're in. Even the ones who are in relatively safe industries are probably thinking, how long are they going to be safe for? Are you, are you giving advice to non-writers about how to deal with looking for work? No, but I will now. Uh, the, you know, I, our business for all of us at the top, in the middle, at the bottom, 
it never gets easier. It's, it's, it's feast or famine. There's an assumption that when you break in, there's something called breaking in. There's some golden Hollywood gates that there's a lot of aspiring people on the outside. And then when you get through those gates, it's all gravy and you're going to work consistently and make lots of money and have lots of success from then on out. And that's not the case. We all, we work, it's a gig economy. We work job to job. So we work and we, you know, hopefully we get paid well for a short or hopefully long period of time and then you're unemployed again. So what happened? And so we're in a weird way, writers in particular, oddly suited for what's happening now. Uh, this global pandemic, this shutdown of Hollywood, and Hollywood is shut down. All the shows have been, there's no more productions. Uh, the only people that can work are the writers, uh, but even our development has slowed down, which means that like the studios don't, aren't buying at the level that they're normally buying. So we're all sort of in this limbo, but it happened to fall in, in what is for network television and what is our hiatus? So there's a period of time where we stop writing and whether or not our show continues, we never start working again until May. So it's about from about March to May is what's known as our hiatus, but it's also known as staffing season. So in those three months, we plan every year, we're not going to work and we're not going to get paid. So all the writers, it just sort of feels like a bit of an extended hiatus that we are not working, most of us, unless you're on a cable show, uh, and we're not getting paid, most of us, unless you've sold a feature or you're developing something. So you're kind of just waiting for this to settle down, but we've all, if you're smart and you've been in the business for a while, you prepare for these downturns. So yes, a lot of people around me are like, I don't know when I'm going back to work, I don't know when I'm gonna get my next paycheck, and we kind of live in that environment in this time of year every year. So, you know, of course, none of us can handle a downturn for very long. I know the Guild is taking steps to protect the, the most vulnerable of us. There's loans and other things. They've, they've stopped negotiating as of today with the studios. We're, we're in a contract negotiations just because we have no leverage. No one has leverage. There's no shows. We can't we can't ask for a new contract until everything starts going back to normal. So, you know, I'm just, you know, in our world, sometimes also when you sell something, it takes one, two, three months to get paid. So we're just, I think every writer is just in the mentality of like, well, it's a delay and there's delays all the time. So it's not that different than the reality we live in. Um, but of course there's more uncertainty. So not, and I don't want to like suggest that people shouldn't be uncertain. It's just that writers have been dealing with this for a long time. So uh, I've been talking to a lot in my day job working for a tech company. And, you know, I guess one of the things you learn during times like this, what sort of employer you work for. And we're in my company where we're, we have stability that a lot of people wouldn't have because of the sort of the ethics and the morals of the guy running the company. And that makes a huge difference. But, you know, we're going through this phase. I'm talking to lots of people about the before and the after. So this doesn't feel even more so than the financial crash. And my wife works in finance. And I think there was a, a distinct before and after in terms of how that industry operated. Everyone's talking about what the before and after is, you know, for our industry in terms of immersive technology, companies like Zoom, which we're using at the moment, are definitely, you know, their before and after is an interesting one. What's it going to be like for, for you, do you think, when this comes out the other end, assuming that we come out the other end of this at some point in the next few months, how will it change the industry, do you think? Well, Zoom, and I told my mom uh, to invest in Zoom because overnight the entire TV industry switched and, and, and Hollywood uh, uh, in general switched to Zoom, uh, meetings over Zoom. And I feel like, I mean, Dan, you know you live in Los Angeles too, getting anywhere in Los Angeles takes an hour, sometimes two hours. And so people who are not from, if you're listening to this in England or you're listening to this somewhere else in the United States and you're not in Los Angeles and you hear that someone lives in Hollywood, I, in your imagination probably it's all very close to each other. But in fact, Hollywood is a very large expanse of real estate all over LA and any meeting could be from, you know, 
45 to an hour and a half away from where you live, even if you live in Hollywood. So what's really going to change, and I know the writers are excited about it, is that we'll take more meetings over Zoom. We don't need to always go to the studios. We don't need to always go in person. It takes half a day sometimes if you have a meeting when you could just be working from home, writing, pausing for an hour, take the meeting over Zoom, go back to writing. And I think people are really liking that. I think they're where we're this, you know, a lot of people in our industry are very, uh, are, are, are introverted, would rather not go out, especially the writers. So I think, you know, that's, that's going to be one big change. And I think people aren't going to go back. And writing rooms will also, you know, we meet in person, but sometimes if you're writing a script and you can't come in, to be able to just sort of connect with the room over Zoom and this, we have not been using it in any real sense. And I think that's going to change. It is changing. Are you wearing trousers or pants as we do this call? I'm wearing sweatpants, uh, which I try to to change every once every four or five days. Yeah, somebody was saying the other day that their dishwasher runs more often than their washing machine at the moment uh, because everyone's eating at home and wearing the same clothes. I mean, don't take this wrong way, but you dress relatively terribly. Uh, So for you, (laughs) the chance to sort of barely bother getting dressed or uh, only having to dress the top of you to go and do a day of work must be very appealing. I think that doesn't change much. I think, again, for people who are not in Hollywood, there's this rule in Hollywood that the writer should be the worst dressed person in the room. And this is, this is a truism. This isn't like a joke. This is when they ask you, when new writers come and say, oh, we have my first meeting with a director, we have our first meeting with a producer, what should we wear? Their general rule of thumb is that the writer should be the worst dressed in the room. So a very standard, not to say don't be stained or with rips or whatever, but very standard outfit in Hollywood is a black t-shirt and jeans. That's just what writers wear. Is that because uh, you want to show you're so busy creating, you haven't got time to think about what you're wearing, or you want to show that you should be paid more and you can't afford nicer clothes? Like, what's the thinking behind it? I think it? There's, a, there's a third option there, which is that when, when, a, when a writer comes into a meeting with a suit, it shows a sort of, uh, the, it's, the, it, it's a representation of the non-creative side, of the business side. So in our business, it's very bifurcated. The agents and studio execs often will wear ties and suits, maybe not as much to studio execs anymore the writers and creatives don't need to do that. And so if you ever watch the TV show Entourage, they used to reference them as the suits, which is the business people. And the creatives don't need to wear that. So I think that it's more a reflection of that than than anything else. So who dresses worse, the actors or the writers? Oh, for sure the writers. I mean, the actors, you know, I've been in a lot of meetings where they actually might look like they're, they're dressed down, but they have to spend a lot of time getting dressed. This, they get judged upon what they look. Uh, there was a funny story once where we were, I'm not sure if I ever told you the story. Maybe I did. When I was working at Colony, we were working on the Universal lot, and every day the writers, I think there was about six of us, seven of us, would walk all around the Universal back lot. And for anyone who's ever been to Universal Studios, the theme park, they do a tour, and the tour takes you right through the back lot of the Universal where we're all working. And so we used to walk right where the tour used to uh, go. And there, so there'd be like, you know, we, we, there would be like hundreds of tourists driving by us every few seconds. And you could sort of hear bits and pieces of their tour. You know, they'd be like, keep your eyes peeled. It's a Tuesday. You might see a celebrity. You might see an actor. You might see a director. And we kind of hear that, the, you know, this person on the speaker talking to their tourists as they're driving up to us. She's like, keep your eyes peeled. You might see an actor or a director or... Oh, everyone look to your left. There's a group of five writers walking our way. And, and we laughed. The people didn't know to laugh, meaning that there was something about the way the five of us looked that instantly triggered to the, to the woman giving the tour that we were writers, that we weren't actors, that we weren't, we weren't good and looking enough to be actors. We weren't well put in, together enough to be producers. So we must have been a group of five sort of slumpy writers uh, trudging across this lot. Fantastic. You've worked on a lot of big shows with a lot of big names over the years. Now, when people give their speeches at the Golden Globes, they often say, when they're finished, you know, thanking their parents and their agents, they often say things, you know, it wasn't for the writers who, you know, literally put these words in our mouths, we wouldn't, you know, be here today, all that sort of stuff. Uh, Are these people nice to you day to day on sets? Oh, on sets for sure. I mean, I think there is, again, there's a difference in the Hollywood world between if you're a feature writer or if you're a TV writer Uh, and a TV writer 
has all the has a lot of the control in in television. So when we come to set, we're on some levels their boss. So yes, some of the top top tier actors can you know can get us fired for sure, um, and they might not be as nice. But the 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 mid the working actor tends to be nice. I mean, we're we're each other's biggest support. They need to perform our words. We need to write well for them. We need to make them look good. They need to make us look good. So it's a very sort of a symbiotic relationship when we come to set. There was a time when I first started where there was some actors that weren't as well behaved or weren't as nice, or or there was this thing where you could be a bad boy of Hollywood or a I guess a bad girl of Hollywood. That's kind of changed. There's just a lot of competition, and you, Shonda. Uh, can we swear on your podcast? Shonda yeah. had a had a, a a no assholes rule. Like she just wasn't gonna she wasn't gonna cast them if they were if they were hard to deal with after having some experience with hard to deal actors on her shows. So this was kind of started with Scandal and began you know continued through the rest of her shows. And it makes a lot of sense. Scandal, which I worked on, you know, under Kerry Washington, who was a number one on that call sheet, she set the lead for everybody and she was amazing and nice and 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 thoughtful and would send donuts to everybody and knew everyone's name and i think that trickles through a crew and when you don't have someone like that or you have some or uh, sort of a bad seed or somebody with an attitude that also trickles through the entire crew and can infect a production so i think people are really careful these days about who they hire and why very good oh it's good to i like kerry washington comes across as very nice in you know obviously she's very in that in that show she's very good but she comes across as a nice person when you see her interviews but as we all know part of the magic of hollywood is some people are really mean even though they come across as nice so it's good to know that she's actually nice yeah I, 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 you know outside this podcast we can talk about the people that aren't so nice but yeah carrie the very first time i met carrie was the very first day of cable reads for scandal season two is when i started on that show and i was just sitting in the back of the table read I've heard season one <laughs> You've heard season one? The, uh, yeah. the, oh, you've heard season one. No, yeah. The, uh, the, the, it all went downhill the moment I, I, I signed on. But the, uh, no, I was, I was just sitting in the back. Um, I could have been anyone. I, I happened to be at that point a co-producer of the show. Uh, but, you know, she immediately came up to me. Uh, she came 20 minutes early just to make sure she met everybody who was in that room. And that included the caterers and the caterers' assistants and the PAs. And the, she went from person to person introducing herself. Of course, you recognize she's the star of the show. But she also really wanted to know who you were, never forgot your name, and would, you know, continue having conversations with you wherever she saw you, on set, on stage, somewhere else in Los Angeles. And I think that that was really, you know, that kind of attitude was, is so helpful on a show. Also really just willing to go the extra mile, shoot extra stuff when you need to. Uh, you know, we've def I've definitely been on shows where the cast doesn't want to do that, and it becomes really difficult. Uh, and the show has a much harder time uh, surviving. And so I think, you know, when you're ever in a position to cast a show, you look at their reel, you look at their performances, and then you have to call people and say, what kind of person is this, you know, guy? Because is he, you know, is he a good person or is she a good person? Because we're going to be together for, you know, hopefully two, five, ten years. And, and that's a long time. So I'm not going to ask you to name any names of mean people because that would be unfair. Um, but can you tell any anecdotes that are vague enough that it doesn't reveal who the people are about bad behavior by people? Or is that not what you want to do? <laughs> I think there's definitely some. The problem is, as I even put, because my resume is very specific, if I say X Toxo show host or if I say X this person, it might be very easy to figure out who they are. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are some people for sure and, and who don't, who aren't as nice. And, and I think part of it has to do, we have this, we have this saying um, in Hollywood that is sort of a truism that everyone starts nice on a show, season one and season two, uh, established actors and up and comers. But by season three, they become really hard to deal with sometimes. And that, that's a reality. That's not actually a sort of, I don't meant to disparage the actors. There's so much pressure on them in the media to be the public face of a show they're doing so much press they're 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 no longer human as we think of a human as in regards to fame being taken care of having all of their uh anything they say 
someone's going to jump and, and handle for them anything they want, any of their needs. Almost everything is free in their lives. They, Shonda and Betsy, who I used to work for, used to joke that the richer you are, the more you got for free. Like they would be getting all kinds of gift bags from people, all kinds of stuff. And that eventually gets to your head. So like by season three, they were just more difficult. Not again, scandal shows I've been on. They stayed wonderful the whole time. But in general, there are shows that I've been on that is very true by season three. The actors are just a little bit more challenging, but we're not being judged the way they are with their face on TV. So again, you got to just sort of look at both sides of things going, would I stay, you know, would I stay grounded if I was getting this much attention and had this much pressure on me to perform and succeed and be, and be vibrant and be amazing. And, and, and probably no, I, I probably would be exactly the same. Given that the writers are in this strange position of however successful you are, you're sort of already always looking for work. If you get in on a show and you're there for a few years, does it happen to you as well? Or are there people in the writing room who have, you know, there are a few seasons into a show, obviously the way the contracts are done, you make more money when shows get renewed, who have probably forgotten what it was like to be unemployed, even if it was only four years ago, and get a bit complacent and a bit arrogant as well? Yeah, arrogant, maybe, complacent for sure. I mean, one of the things we need to do all the time as writers is come up with new work, come up with new samples. So like when you're on a show, a network show, 22 episodes, and you're on for a few seasons, sometimes you forget you need to do that. So, you know, there were some situations on this show I just came off of that the writers had to scramble to come up with samples because the show got canceled somewhat unexpectedly and they weren't quite ready to, to put, you know, to, to put themselves back out there. So there is definitely complacency uh, that happens, but writer, writers in general do not have the same job security on TV shows that actors do. If you've hired an actor and they're a star of the show, you're not going to fire them. You're going to protect them if the show is doing well, no matter how badly they behave for the most part with some very rare exceptions, they're going to stay on the air and they're going to be coddled writers. If you could be on a hit show, you could have a script people love or whatever, and you didn't gel with the showrunner and you find yourself not working come, come May. So there's a little bit extra, a little bit less job security. Uh, just means you have to work a little bit harder. Yeah, very good. So I'm, normally we delve deeper into the life of the person, but given we did a good session on the uh, coronavirus at the beginning, which is what we should be doing during the social distancing specials. <laughs> I, I don't have it. Things have moved so quickly that apparently I did a social distancing special last week and apparently social distancing is now called physical distancing and social because you need to physically be distant but socially you need to make sure you're interacting. Obviously we're, we're Zooming and we've FaceTimed a little bit during all of this. I've just been on a, an app called House Party where I met eight of my friends in the UK for they were drinking. I was having a coffee because it was lunchtime here. There's lots of people interacting with each other. Are you finding yourself picking up the phone or zooming or whatever with a more people, but also are you finding old friends and more distant relatives you're getting hold of during all of this? There was an early check-in and, and for sure for me by text, I'm checking in with a lot of old friends. I am talking to them as well. It's a little trickier because um, like you, I have two children at home that need to be homeschooled. So finding that balance of homeschooling them, calling friends, getting my work done. I have a feature that I need to finish and, and get into the studio. Like it, this, this work-life balance, there, there is no separation anymore. So um, I am keeping touch with people, but I don't have like, I, I assume there'd be a lot more Netflix. I'd assume there'd a lot be like, I'd get bored. And really every day goes by with a thousand extra things to do because of, of, the close proximity of your family and making sure your kids are okay and making sure yeah. you're still doing your job and cooking. Uh, so last night we had some friends who wanted to do a, a, uh, a FaceTime drink at 8.30 and my wife had to skip it because she was so tired because it had been such a long day. And I'm finding that. So I've, you know, they say working from home, and there always used to be this joke before all this happened, people used to mock the people who worked from home saying they're not doing real jobs. But, you know, I'm working for a company because we've got offices in the UK. I'm doing long days of, you know, our company hasn't changed. In what, well, we're changing what we're trying to do, but we're not changing our work. We're still working on a full time way. So we are I'm doing a full job. And then obviously we've got the kids 
my wife and I are finding ways of helping them with their homeschool. And we're in second week of quarantine here, so the school have got better at sending more specific tasks. The first week was all, and also we thought it was going to be two weeks, and it's now already six, and it's probably going to be ten. So that's all getting a bit better. We've actually found a really good teaching assistant called Disney Plus. So she's been really helpful for the afternoons. So that's helped us all work a bit harder. Um, my, my wife is being really careful to not, um, you know, to be a little bit, be as strict as we can be with just with schedules. Otherwise, we know that it's going to be Lord of the Flies in this house, you know, sooner rather than later. The moment we begin to like break down and say, okay, you can start, not Disney Plus, because yeah, that can start a little early, but like screen time like you have to like be rigid with it or or soon i think our fear is that that it'll just be all day every day where we're just no one's getting dressed and people are on their screens and yeah, you can yeah. evolve really quickly so our kids have to get dressed before school starts i know in england where people wear school uniform a lot of people are making their kids put on their full school uniform on there's a lot of people getting fully dressed not just like you where you just put on a slightly different black t-shirt for your zoom calls you know the people are getting full work dress for their work zooms uh, it's important while we're all at home to do this but what's interesting i always used to joke about this with you and i'm not going to name the show but i know that you you had an interview for a show this week and you i, I said oh, you know do you want to have, have a you know have a quick facetime or we were going to play cards over so and uh, you said you couldn't because you literally had to watch 40 episodes of television because that's how you prep for potentially joining a show that's a few seasons on. Which, and this is the second or third time this has happened to you. I remember what happened with Hawaii Five-0. There was like, this week where you had to watch 100 episodes of television in order to prep for your interview. which didn't feel like real work, but obviously it's, uh, you're in a weird position where watching TV is your preparation. And it's funny because we don't watch, I watch much less TV than I want to. There's, we're so far behind on all of the shows that we should be watching. My wife and I, I try to watch it with her when we both have time, which means only after the kids go to bed at 9, 9.30. And by then you're so tired that you really might watch one half of one episode. So yeah, those days where I was, you know, prepping for the show that I interviewed for last week or Hawaii Five-0, you really do have to like fit in 50 episodes. The irony of the show I just interviewed for is it never even came up that I like, just like, you know, you prepare just in case there's questions. You want to know all the characters, you want to know all the dynamics. And we spent about three minutes talking about the act, that actual part of things. I could have maybe watched one episode, but you don't want to go and, and interview. These are big jobs. There's a lot of people that I worked really hard to be able to be even in consideration for one of these jobs. And, and it's still a crapshoot for me. And for every writer, really, we all, you know, there's just so many people who want these jobs. There's something like 60,000 spec scripts registered with the WGA every single year. And those are not the professionals. Those are aspiring writers who want to break in, who have a dream of Hollywood, which we all had. And we all had to do that and kind of come through. And so every time you're up for one of these network jobs or cable jobs or any job, there's a ton of competition. So with people who are your peers, sometimes your friends, very talented writers in many cases, and you just have to show that you're prepared. And one of those ways that we got to show we're prepared is that you know the show. Uh, so yeah, sometimes we end up, all of us, like trying to watch as many as possible, staying up late, watching 20, 30, 40 episodes, uh, in, and trying to break down the episodes in a way that the average viewer doesn't need to. So we yeah. understand how each act works. We understand how the plot works. We can understand how the character dynamics are, which takes a lot of fun, of the fun, out of watching. But it's, you know, sometimes those questions come up in the meetings. Yeah, when I used to be a sports journalist, sometimes the more exciting the game, the less I enjoyed it. Because if there's a last-minute winner in a football game... And these are the days we used to phone the copy in on the final whistle. You basically pre-write most of it. So if it was 5-0, then you can basically write your story. You know, in a game that's ebbing and flowing, it, always, it makes it the job a lot harder. And obviously it was quite exhilarating in some ways, but there were times where you're like, I really could do without the last minute equaliser in this sporting fixture because I'm going to have to rewrite everything. And I, you know, it, it, when I stopped being a sports journalist, I enjoyed sport for at least the next couple of years a lot more because I could just watch it and bet on it and, and drink a beer and not worry about the detail. 
Um, so I guess for you, similarly, if you're watching a TV show for fun, then that's great. But if you're watching it thinking, how would I write this if I was on the next episode? It's a lot more uh, detailed, analytical, and you're not enjoying the plot. You're just understanding the plot. Especially for the shows that you work on, when you work on them, you never really enjoy watching the episode because all you can see is all the sort of all the sausage that went into making the sandwich and you see all the stuff you didn't use. You see all the stuff that you did use, but didn't go very well. You like, you think of all the takes that maybe would have been better or versions that would have been better or plot lines thrown out. So you can't, you, you see them say lines. You think about an argument you got in with your coworker over something that happened while that line was being put on the board. So like, it's never like, you can never just sort of escape into the show that, especially when you've been working on the show, but then there is some sense of pride, uh, you know, seeing your name and, and knowing that you just put something out there that, you know, seven, nine, 10 million people are going to watch and, and hopefully enjoy uh, yeah, without well, knowing all that. The two episodes of Hawaii Five-O that you co-wrote in the last season, we, we, were, we did watch parties with you for, and it was fun seeing your name come up. Oh, sorry, it was fun for me seeing your name come up on the screen. I presume it was more fun for you. Uh, so it's exciting. Yeah, there's, you never know when... I think in our business that you you might not have another one. So you try to, you know, you assume maybe you'll have another produce credit, but you don't know. And so you take those wins where you get them. I, you know, there's a lot of writers that I know who have great lives in LA who have never had a single produced uh, movie or TV show. They write things, they sell them, and, and, and it's really hard here. And they're talented and it just doesn't get made. And they'll live their, make their whole career without ever getting something on the air. So in TV, we're a bit more lucky. When we're on a staff, for sure, you're probably going to have one or two episodes at least where you have your name on them that will get, air, will get made and will, get, will be aired and you can show it with your friends. But like, there's a thrill to see my name. But the, the bigger thing is it's almost like I know I need to hold on to it because you know, there's a chance that I might not get another one or you just got to kind of hold on to your wins when they happen because there, there can be few and far be, between, even for people, you know, who are making a living in this, in this business. Absolutely. Now, look, before we get on to the final question of the podcast, the whiskey question, which I'm not sure how we're going to do that with you, uh, just a, a sort of coronavirus TV writer special. If you could recommend three shows for people to watch during this period of... For those people who actually have time to watch shows, which as we discussed isn't actually everybody, three shows. Okay. Watch. Uh, the three shows that I've enjoyed recently is, I mean, this is probably one that people are already watching, but it's Succession, which is on HBO. Amazing. Agree. A great show. I really enjoyed, and our, our writing room talked about this show a lot, which I think is going to surprise people. It's a docu-series on Netflix called Cheer. Uh, it's real life. It's about cheerleaders, high, uh, college, junior college cheerleaders. And I've never been so emotional um, watching a show that was, you know, again, just about cheerleading. And it, it, I think it made us, we, we we're all saying you cry at least three to four times watching that in a good way. Not like crying because you're like super sad and gutted, but just crying because you're in love with the characters and they've been through so much and you want them to succeed. So cheer is Amazing. another one. Amazing. And, and the third one is I just finished watching it last night and I enjoyed it on a really on a sort of religious philosophical level, which is Messiah, another Netflix show. Yeah. Really enjoyed watching, you know, what would happen if uh, a Messiah came down who, you know, who seemed to be legit, but you just never know. And the doubts and how that plays out in the media and the government. And it was very grounded. It, it's not, doesn't feel fantastical at all, even though occasionally fantastical things happen. It felt really interesting and it was a compelling show and I'm glad it exists. So those are the three that I think I would recommend, you know, people watching. Uh, if you, it, it's a, they're very different. All, you know, each of them is very different from the other, but I think they're enjoyable. Amazing. Okay. Uh, I think my three would be, well, Fleabag, which is a, bit, a little bit older now, but if you haven't seen Fleabag it, amazing. Uh, sex Education, which I'm on season two of now. Uh, if you've not seen that, it's about a sex therapist, um, which is extraordinary. And actually, I'll be watching Curb Your Enthusiasm, the new series. Uh, I've always loved that show for the awkwardness of it, um, and I'm particularly enjoying it at the moment. So you, you, you don't like shows that are longer than 30 minutes, it sounds like, in, in your three that you picked. 
yeah. Two of them are British shows. I'm just, I mean, I, you, you can be, you know, you can, f- oh, and The Bodyguard, speaking of British shows, I actually would place The Bodyguard over Messiah. If oh, you yeah. haven't seen The Bodyguard, it was such a fun show that came out a yeah, year ago, two years ago, British show. Yeah. Now, look, so for, uh, see, the last question, we always ask guests, as you know, because you've listened to this podcast many times, um, is if you could drink any whiskey with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be, what would it be, and where would it be? We've been adapting it for the coronavirus uh, to if you could drink any whiskey with anyone alive now, in the light of all that's going on, who would it be, where would it be, and what would it be? You don't drink whiskey. Um, so I'm going to let you answer this how you like. You can have whiskey because this is all hypothetical anyway. But let's do the coronavirus special version of this because you know, people want different things at this time to they did two weeks ago. So if you could have a drink of your choice with anyone, anywhere, of any drink, what would it be given today's circumstances? Um, you said alive. Yes. And I had come prepared with two dead ones that I was going to throw at you and now you oh, threw well, see, this is your fault for not listening to the coronavirus social distancing specials where we are making it up to date because people are there are friends people are missing and so on but go on given you've actually prepped I'm not going to be mean about this I'm not that sort of person I'm going to be very Kerry Washington about this so you can answer twice so give me the answer you would have had if I'd invited you onto the show pre-social distancing which I wouldn't have done because you don't drink whiskey and uh, and then give me your Special well, the, the two the two dead people and I and I picked two because I couldn't decide between them. Both have been huge inspirations for me as a writer, and I think as a writer it'd be pretty you know you 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 need to pick or it'd be a pretty obvious pick would be William Shakespeare. I'd love to talk to Shakespeare in the Globe Theater uh, during the time period in which he was writing his plays like Hamlet. You okay. He or she, yeah, and we'd find out the truth for it once. The rumor, if, you know, the rumor. right? If if he, you know, Shakespeare really existed, and and was he an actor, and did he write King Lear during the plague, which is what all the writers are telling each other that we should be writing things like King Lear because that's what he did during the plague. Um, but then I was also really, you know, would have loved to have met William Goldman, who passed away a couple of years ago. William Goldman was a writer and a, a novelist and a screenwriter. He wrote screenplays one of the most famous screenplays he wrote was the princess bride uh as well as butch cassidy and the sundance kid and he was such a big influence on me as a writer he his writing in particular um was the was one of the reasons why i really wanted to become a screenwriter and really understood that there was a craft of screenwriting i i think a lot of people think that the actors just sort of say the lines and the director kind of makes them say these lines and that's how the movie comes but you know really someone needs to put these words on a page. And it, William Goldman was the first person that I realized not only did it, but did it really well. And from all I've heard is he was an amazing mentor to a lot of screenwriters, even up to the recent past, two years ago. He would call, you know, he was, you know, as he got older and older, he would still call writers and help them with scripts and just try to make the industry as good as it could be. So that would be my two dead people. Um, living would be my probably my third inspiration as a writer would be James Cameron. Uh, you know, obviously he's a big name director. A lot of people don't realize that he's also a writer and he writes the movies that he directs for the most part. Uh, and his script Aliens uh, was another huge inspiration of mine of just the the second Alien movie about how to write science fiction and action and characters and make char- compelling characters. So you know those are my sort of trifecta of like writing inspirations that got me here and i'd love to have whiskey with any of them now i don't drink and i haven't had any anything to drink in 10 years with with a few small exceptions uh one of those exceptions being that i have drank drank uh some belveni when i was working on colony uh and i enjoyed it uh and oh, but my friend did the tasting for you i believe yeah. Yep. Cousin, who was on episode yep. four of this show. We, yep. we did that tasting because we had mentioned Belveni on air um, as, a, as a whiskey that uh, one of the characters, uh, well, Scotch, Scotch yep. uh, that one of the characters, one of our characters liked to drink. And it wasn't a product placement. Sometimes people pay us, you know, the show is lots of money. In this case, he was 
just sort of happy. It was a free mention because the creators like the whiskey. It's very high end. And they just sort of gave us, you know, a sip of some of their best Belveni. And it's really amazing. So I, I, that's, I'd probably want to drink a Belveni uh, today with James Cameron. Uh, anywhere where there's lots of people in the coronavirus special, because that means that the coronavirus quarantine is over and we could be around other people and uh, I could have a conversation about craft, which would be very exciting to me. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that final sentiment. And it's worth saying, so uh, at the beginning of the year, Noah and I decided to do a weight loss challenge and we both went on this diet and the intention was we've got 90 days to lose as much weight as possible. And then on the 91st day, we were going to go to Vegas and whoever lost the most weight was going to pay for the drinks um, and the food. Uh, I think we were going to do a buffet of buffets pass uh, just to put all the weight back on in 24 hours. Um, and so that, actually that trip was due to be next Thursday. Um, so uh, we cancelled this trip whenever this first started, I think. Um, and I think next Thursday I'm going to be, I mean, I'm sad about Vegas. I'm sad about lots of things that are happening at the moment, but that will be a particularly pertinent day because we should have been there celebrating our fantastic diets neither of which are going very well at the moment because we're quarantined and it's quite hard to diet and exercise when you're quarantined and your kids are at home um, but uh, yeah a very good sense um, so look Noah thank you very much for being the first non-drinking guest to appear on our whiskey podcast um, if we weren't in these extreme circumstances this of course would never have been allowed but I believe it's allowed because I knew you'd have a good story to tell um, and you've told it very well. So thank you, Noah, for your time. Thank you. I, a pleasure. I'm a big fan of this podcast and I'm glad to be on it. Mm, I love scotch. Scotch. And don't forget to not just follow us on Twitter and Instagram at US of Dramerica, but also ask us questions and comment and say nice things. And please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And if the mood takes you, you can leave us a review as uh, feedback is always welcome. And drink whiskey. Slonchevar. <laughs>